Hawkins Policy Radio, offering a unique perspective on everything, geopolitics, culture creation, the reality of the world we live in. Coming to you live from New York City, your host, Pierce Redmond. Okay, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Porkins Policy Radio. As always, I am your host, Pierce Redmond, and you can find this show here at American Freedom Radio, AmericanFreedomRadio.com, as well as on my website, which is PorkinsPolicyReview.com. And, of course, there are uh, lots of ways to listen to the show. I know we're picking up new listeners all the time, so you can always uh, find the show, of course, archived at AFR. You can find them on my website. We're on iTunes, uh, Stitcher, TuneIn. You can always find these shows on YouTube. Um, we're also uh, re- rebroadcast later on on Friday nights, I believe, if I'm getting my times right, from 10 to midnight. We're uh, replayed on a bunch of other uh, stations, including uh, Awake Radio. And then uh, you can also tune in on Saturdays from 6 to 8 uh, Mountain Time, I think. Or no, is it Pacific? I can never remember. Uh, 6 to 8, um, if you're in Utah on KYAH, um, a, a great AM station out there, so you can always listen to it uh, over there in Utah. And I, and I know we're, we're picking up lots of listeners out there as well. Uh, and, of course... If you want to support my work, then you can always go to patreon.com slash Pierce Redmond, and you can become a subscriber of the show for as little as a dollar a month. And, of course, with those uh, with that dollar, you will get access to the exclusive Porkins Policy Radio bonus podcast. I will – I know I'm like a broken record with these. I, I will be releasing it. Don't worry. It, it will come out in January. Uh, I'm talking right now. But I might uh, have an interesting guest on for the – a bonus podcast, a woman named Amy Valilla, Valila, uh, who is um, uh, Ed Opperman actually recommended me to uh, recommended her to me, uh, but she's a very interesting woman who is running for a congressional seat out in Nevada. <clears throat> Excuse me, her um, her daughter died because of a lapse in health insurance, so she's got quite a bit to say on all of that. So I might be getting her on either this month or possibly early next month. Uh, for the bonus podcast, but uh, lots of interesting stuff over there, of course, and I want to thank Connor for recently signing up to Patreon, so thank you so much, Connor, and uh, thank you to everybody that signs up on Patreon. One other quick little note, and then I will I will stop rambling and get on to today's show, which I'm very excited about. Uh, I just wanted to mention, Christoph and I, um, you know, lo and behold, uh, we w- probably won't be able to release another episode of Porkin's Great Game this January. Um, we had some scheduling difficulties, uh, and uh, Christoph got kind of sick, and then I was sick. Uh, but we, we are aiming to record something early on in February. Of course, lots to talk about on the geopolitical front. So definitely check out uh, Porkin's Great Game and, and uh, look out for updates. I'll, of course, be updating people on Twitter. And you can always support Christoph and I by going to patreon.com slash Porkin's Great Game. And, um, of course, I'll mention it uh, when we when we record the next episode, but we've had a couple people recently um, uh, becoming subscribers, and we will be charging the subscribers finally uh, when we do release our next episode. But anyway, enough about me and and Patreon and all those things. I want to welcome back a very special guest, uh, John Atak, 
who, of course, joined us uh, back on episode 118, where we discussed uh, his magnificent book, Let's Sell These People a Piece of Blue Sky, and we talked about Hubbard and Scientology. And, uh, and, and towards the second hour, we talked a little bit about the Open Minds Foundation, and that's uh, what John and I are going to be discussing more so uh, in this episode and also his uh, book, Opening Minds. But uh, John Atak, how are you? It's good to talk to you again. I'm good, Pierce. How are you? Excellent, excellent. Um, as I said, I'm, I'm very excited to have you back on. And um, and this is, uh, like I said, I wanted to talk to you about your work uh, that you're currently working on, particularly educating children and, and young people about undue influence and, and the people that are kind of exerting this very toxic uh, behavior on children. But before we get to that, um, I just wanted this is sort of like an aside but is related. Uh, and this is a funny thing because people – uh, people were quite impressed uh, that I had you on uh, the show, and they, they really liked the episode. And I remember I was describing um, uh, the, the episode to, like, a friend of mine, and I kept kind of catching myself saying, you know, they were like, oh, who is John Atak? And I said, oh, well, he's an, an ex-Scientologist, a former Scientologist. And um, and I've used that term to describe other people I've had on the sh- you know, Aaron Smith-Levin, uh, has been on the show many, many times, uh, and uh, I would, you know, refer to Aaron as a, a former Scientologist or something like that. But I was actually listening uh, to some uh, older lectures that you have given in the past, and uh, and you you kind of um, don't really love that uh, that moniker of a former Scientologist, and I think that's a, an important distinction to be to, to be made about you know not using the term ex Scientologist because. Uh, as you you describe in a, a lecture I was watching recently, um, you know you said that, that that you know that becomes a sort of like defining characteristic of one's life. And I don't know, John. Just before we kind of dive into this, I just uh, wanted to get your take on that because um, it it does become the you know it's like who is John Atak? Oh well, he was a Scientologist. You know that's his life. Um, and one of the hardest things of leaving, certainly leaving a cult, but any kind of control group. Uh, is this that you you kind of have to like redefine your life and you don't want your life to be seen through the prism of oh I was uh, a Scientologist so I don't know John maybe just quickly kind of talk to that because I think it's an interesting uh, thing that you brought up in this lecture. Mm. Well, it, it's like saying oh this person's a former idiot. Right. You know, yeah. Yes. Yeah, right. Give you the best start. I, I left Scientology 34 years ago. Mm. Um, I was never a live-in member, and unlike most of the people that I've known, and I've known hundreds of people who've left Scientology, um, I really wasn't traumatized or abused, so it didn't define me then either. I didn't work for them. I, you know, I just gave them money so they could occasionally they could mess my mind up a little bit. Mm. And um, you know, I, I had a couple of years in art college during that period. I was 19 when I walked in. I was 28 when I left. And, you know, I did spend the next dozen years of my life standing up and saying, you know, this is a very dangerous organization, an incredibly deceptive organization um, that, you know, seeks to ruin anybody who criticizes it. And I can speak to that. The harassment continued for four years beyond those 12 years. After, you know, even after I'd fallen silent, they, they still came after me. But no, it, it, you know, I, I'm an artist. I, I had something of a career as a musician. I was, played drums in bands when I was a teenager. Then um, I've written a couple of novels. I've translated the Tao Te Ching. Um, 
I sing, I, I do all sorts of things. And it comes back to this, oh yeah, well, you used to be a Scientologist and, and that's <laughs> such a long time ago. Um, but we do see it. We, we see a, a great many people who define themselves still in that way, that they still consider that, you know, perhaps that's the most important part of your life. In fact, I, I did a um, podcast with uh, Chris Shelton and some somebody, some troll came along and commented, you know, can't you people think about anything other than Scientology? And it's mm. like, well, yeah, I've been thinking about quite a lot of other things in Scientology, yeah. actually. Can't you think of anything other than trolling, you know? Mm. Um, <laughs> which is probably what he does all day long. Um, so, I... 1996, I decided I, I didn't want to be steamrolled by a cult anymore, and so I, I withdrew. Uh, they tried to get me to sign a silence contract, and there were conversations about large amounts of money, and I had to point out to my lawyer that, that I, no amount of money was going to make me hold my tongue, you know, if and when I felt like saying something, I was going to say it. And so no deal was struck, thankfully. Um, and after that, I, I, by that time, I'd become more and more interested in how does it work. So I left Scientology and my interest was in, you know, how had we been taken in and what was the history of this movement, what were the many conflicts in Hubbard's own talks about himself, um, which quite obviously showed that he was a pathological liar. He couldn't help but you know, retell every story in a different way. You know, one day he'd been wrestling with a Kodiak bear and the next day he'd become a polar bear and, you know, and then you find out that he'd once seen a photograph of a bear and that was the reality of it. <laughs> um, but there, you know, he claimed to be a war hero, but of course he'd admitted publicly in lectures that he didn't really see active service at all. Um, other than a 55 hour battle with two non-existent submarines off the coast of Oregon. But that's another story. Um, <laughs> So, to, you know, to come away from that and, you know, I became more interested in what are the dynamics of this relationship, particularly when I left, I looked at Hubbard very quickly, realized, you know, because I still believed in Scientology, um, I just felt the mother cult had become dangerous. So I, I became, you know, and I realized that Hubbard was a, a fabulist and therefore could not be trusted and should not be trusted. And that's where I hit my first obstacle. When I turned round to other people who'd been involved and showed them Hubbard contradicting himself, they justified it in some way. My favourite being somebody who said that, you know, where there were two accounts of particular events, that he must have had two bodies, um, which is a perfectly reasonable explanation, if you're nuts. Um, so... How do you get it over to people? How do you get past people's confirmation bias and allow them to think about things again? And that took me through all sorts of texts about mind control, whether it be the, you know, the US government, Canadian government, MK Ultra and things like mm -hmm. that, or through to, um, you know, Philip Zimbardo's work. Um, I'm very happy to say that Professor Zimbardo is on our advisory board at the Open Minds Foundation now, so it, it paid off reading reading about the um, Stanford Prison Experiment and all of that. Um, reading Robert J. Lifton about thought reform and the thought reform camps in China and North Korea, coming to know Margaret Singer, who'd worked with POWs who were coming back from um, Korea, and 
I mean, she had this thing where she said, well, look, a POW is very much like an abused spouse. You know, they've been pushed into this subservient position. And I think that opened me up to saying, well, heck, you know, most of what goes on in so-called cult groups is just normal social behavior, that the dynamics of groupthink exist all around us. And whatever faction or club or political party or religious persuasion we have, we tend to think ourselves into the group and promote the group even when we can see excesses within the group. So I, I wanted to understand that more deeply, and that that's how I spent the 90s and um, looking particularly at terrorism um, before 9-11, but looking at not only the Islamist groups, um, but also Bader-Meinhof, the Red Brigades, Ordo Nuevo, the PKK, the Tamil Tigers, Sendero Luminoso, ETA. What was it that inspired these people and, and how did they bind together? And you could see the same dynamics if you looked at um, Sedamaki in, in France during the Second War. Or indeed, if you look back to the American Revolution, you could find people who were fervent, who were determined they're so determined that they're willing to die for a cause. Um, how are people motivated? And so that, that's what drove me, um, which takes us a little, you know, I don't know what, I, you know, I, I'm a, an ex-idiot. I'm a, an ex-scientologist. <laughs> uh, I'm not really sure. I, I'm a, a student of the mind. Let's, let's say that I'm that for today. Mm. <laughs> well, and, you know, I, I bring it up because, um, you know, that, that seems to be one of the hardest parts, if not maybe perhaps the hardest part of leaving a cult or a control group or anything, uh, that, that has sort of control over you is redefining yourself. Uh, mm -hmm. and I know, um, uh, on, on your advisory board, uh, at the Open Minds Foundation, uh, someone who I've mentioned before on the show, Masood Bonistar, who was a longtime member of the MEK, which of course has, uh, just reinvented itself yet again as the so-called legitimate opposition movement in Iran. And yep. he said, um, I think he was talking with Steve Hassan uh, 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 in an interview, and he was saying, you know, one of the hardest things was just when you leave is like, oh, how do I go to the store? You know, how do I buy pants? How do I get a job? Um, how do I kind of redefine myself as John Atak without well, this uh, well, this powerful group? I did go to the store and buy pants. I was never a living member. Mm. So I lived in the world outside. And for two years, I, I wandered off and went to art college because that was more important to me. So, in, in fact, um, my friend, friend um, Alex Stain, who is a professor of social psychology, she published a book last year um, called Terror, Love and Brainwashing. And I get about 60 pages in and realized that by her definition, I'd never been a cult member. Mm, you know, interesting. That, you know, I'd lived in, in the outside world, and to me, it, it was pretty much like the relationship you'd have with maybe a, a counselor if you decided that you were going to train as a counselor yourself. So I, I took Scientology courses, but I lived an independent life. And uh, but you know, moving from there, for most people, particularly if they've been in one of the inner organizations, which in Scientology is the sea organization, as in a body of water, sea, um, they really are, you know, they work a 90-hour week, they're enslaved, um, they these days are not really allowed to have children. When I was involved, they didn't see their children for more than an hour or two a week. Um, 
they're deprived of their liberty really and for having dealt with I don't know about 600 recovering members since I left and as I say I'm not really engaged with that anymore but having dealt with so many people you do find that particularly second generation members who they have no other um, place to look for their ideas and so for them it's very difficult to construct a view of the world and they may well you know I, I mean I came back and started talking again in 2013 after a 17 year hiatus because I realized that many people perhaps most people who come out of Scientology never get over it 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 has taken over their way of being their way of thinking so even when they stopped using the language um, and, and this would be true for any high control group really of any kind of terrorist group a religious group a political group um, a business group a therapy group that that people as you say have to redefine themselves and you know I, I've come to recommend certain texts over the years that, that are helpful for that uh, most recently I've been very surprised by a book called Happy by uh, Darren Brown Darren Brown's very famous in the UK as a kind of um Conjurer and um, well, he's of, like a magician, right? Yeah, it, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, he he has shown how false memory works. He's mm-hmm. read on all of the things the spiritualists do, like you know, table turning and what have you, and persuaded people to do this. He's incredible. I mean, he's I think he's perhaps done more to advance our social understanding of the mind than than anyone else because he's shown how easy it is. You know, to tell somebody what's on the shopping list they've got in their pocket or how much money they've got in their wallet or things like this. He, he can do these things. But he's written a book called Happy, which is really an exploration. He's an atheist. Um, I'm not. I'm an agnostic. I, I know nothing. <laughs> <clears throat> but he's an atheist. And he wanted to write something about how to live a life of thought. And he talks particularly about the Greek and Roman Stoics, um, Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, um, with whom I was not particularly familiar, and shows ways of looking at the world. What's great about this book is it challenges preconceptions. So in reading it, the hope is that somebody will be forced into thinking about what they're reading and not come into some, oh, he's my guru, he's my god, I now believe all of that, but actually thinking their way through. I've long used the Chinese Stoics, the, the Taoist uh, teachers, as, as a way of helping people. Indeed, I've translated character by character Lao Tzu's Tao Te Ching um, because it's so far away from what most cult members in the West have experienced that it challenges their thinking. And the important thing is not that they come to agree with any of it at all, but they come to say, well, is that the right way to look at things? Have I, you know, is past lives correct? You know, are we really puppets who are acted upon by thousands of little demons in our heads or body thetans, as the Scientologists call them? Mm. Is this a truthful view of the world? And, you know, so I think that it, it's very important to shake up what, what we believe on a regular basis. I mean, I try to, you know, continue to read things that disagree with me. Um, and uh, at the moment I'm reading uh, Robert A. Burton, who's a neurologist, who's written a couple of incredible books, one called On Being Certain, 
which points out that certainty is an emotion. It's not a, a rational position. Most of us, we feel certain about things. And, you know, I've learned to challenge that because of my membership for Scientology. Why do I believe this? And that kind of, you know, wobbly, dizzy feeling you get when you question one of your deep assumptions about life. Um, for me, that, that's an, you know, that's a really important part of life. Um, unfortunately, our society is much more concerned with obedience and grouping people together under the same flags, you know. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And same political parties. And, and I guess that, that kind of brings us uh, more uh, around to what uh, we wanted to get into today. And that is, again, uh, the work that you, uh, you and many other people um, are doing over at the Open Minds Foundation. Because, uh, you know, for people that are unaware, and we'll link up to this uh, in the show notes, uh, both to the Open Minds Foundation website and also to a recent uh, post that I think you actually penned, uh, talking about this sort of what you've accomplished over the past year and what you seek to accomplish later, um, is that, you know, this, the Open Minds Foundation is not, you know, it's not all about uh, cults like the, the Moonies or the MEK or Scientology or groups like that. I mean, you really uh, dive much deeper into this and you talk about the ways in which uh, high control groups function on a sort of day-to-day -day level with average people, how undue influence uh, seems to seep in from all sort of uh, corners of our lives. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and like I said, you specifically, John, are working on ways to kind of help uh, educate young people and children about this. Um, and I think before we kind of get into this, it will be somewhat useful, because I think some people might be a little confused uh, I mean, explain what the concept of undue influence is, um, because I think a lot of people, again, assume that this has to be some sort of uh, uh, this is coming from like a charismatic cult leader or guru that has control over people, whereas undue influence is really something that affects all of us, unfortunately, on some level. You know, and some people may be more susceptible to it than others, but undue influence exists in a lot of different ways. So define what you mean when you, you talk about this term. Um, there are many synonyms for it. Uh, coercive control has started to be used when talking about intimate relationships between people where one dominates the other. Um, the term undue influence is a legal term, and I started using it because there were so many sociologists who seemed to believe that, that there are no hidden influences in our society at all. And so they have argued, you know, that we should just let people join whatever group they want to and it's a part of growing up to do that. Well, when you meet somebody who's been in a group for 40 years or Masood Banisadra was in MEK for 25 years mm. and has a PhD, you're not talking about <laughs> a child here, um, talking about a very educated man, um, that what undue influence of itself starts as a legal term and I wanted to say well look this is established in law you know whatever sociological hypotheses you might have this has been with us for hundreds of years and it started really in as with cases where wills were contested um, there's a beautiful case from the early 17th century about a woman called Mrs. Death which is a, a great name and she, <laughs> the, the, the trial was actually commented upon by Sir Francis Bacon the man who some people think wrote Shakespeare, but certainly mm -hmm. wrote philosophy and um, was a... New Atlantis. Know. Yep, 
and the the new organum, the Novum Organum. Um, a quite remarkable man, and he tried this case. And what had happened was that this woman had seduced an old man, a man in his eighties, taken her in, him into her household, locked him in a room, and basically abused him horribly. And he signed over all of his money to her. And the court then had to determine whether her influence was undue, um, improper. And the court did determine it was, and she didn't get any money. It's largely in the legal arena stayed there, but the idea is that there is a presumption of undue influence if you are dealing with an authority. So if you're dealing with a priest, a doctor, a counsellor, um, a lawyer, and you give them, make them a you know, generous donation or a gift of some kind, you have the right to claim that back because it is presumed in law that they have an undue influence upon you because of their authority. So you then have a concept which is called active or express undue influence, which is where, which is where you can show that particular techniques have been used. I mean, Mrs. Death used to flog the old bloke with a, a birch and leave it to soil the bed and things like that. So, you know, these are pretty straightforward forms of, of influence. What happened in the post-war period was a massive interest, particularly by the US military, in the psychology of control. So if you look at the 20 years after World War II, over 90% of psychological research in the US was actually funded by the US military. Indeed, even um, Philip Zimbardo had the US Navy funding things he was doing. And of course, you've got these kind of vaguely hippie people like Zimbardo or Stanley Milgram who used this money to actually find very useful things out about how we behave. When Stanley Milgram did his uh, experiments at Yale University with the famous shock machines, um, which weren't actually connected to anything, and the screaming actors, he polled psychiatrists before doing this and said, well, how many people will comply with me when I just tell them, you know, press a shock button? And the psychiatrists, between them, he added up the estimates it came to, they believe that 1% of people would comply. Well, the reality is that 100% of people were willing to press a button to give somebody a shock. <laughs> and he conducted many variants of the experiment and found that about 62.5% of people will go all the way to the triple X dangerous uh, lever on the machine if somebody says to them, it's all right, it's my responsibility. What you do, it's not down to you what you're doing. And that's, I think they'd been, you know, with Hannah Arendt and, um, others investigating how on earth the Nazis had come to power when they were such a vicious bunch of thugs. Yet by 1938, when the last election is held, the last vote, 98% of people in Germany and Austria voted to lose the right to vote, voted to make Hitler you know, their dad who'd from now on look after them. And he, he wasn't even blonde, you know, or blue-eyed. or No, tall. no, no. It wasn't even German. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's absolutely ridiculous. Um, so those dynamics have been very well investigated and a great deal has been understood about how we behave. But for some reason, it's never really penetrated our educational system, which is still very much authority-based and obedience-based. Um, my friend, Ari Chalef, wrote a wonderful book called Intelligent Disobedience, pointing out that uh, 
If you are training a guide dog for a blind person, the guide dog must be able to say no. If the blind person is about to walk into something, mm. the guide dog has to be able to disobey. Why don't we teach our children this principle? You know, do, why do we give them all of this black and white thinking, this right and wrong thinking, rather than encouraging them to debate and think about things? Are we that frightened that, you know, they might cause a revolution? Um, that, so, you know, so that we mustn't allow them to think and speculate. And wherever educational programs, and there have been thousands of them, it has happened all over the world, wherever educational programs have been used that do encourage kids to think, they actually get better grades and you get much better behaviour from them. So mm. I think there's a myth of, of obedience that we're still in the kind of Charles Dickens world of spare the rod and spoil the child, that, you know, we, we, we need to encourage creativity and instead we're encouraging conformity. Oh, and, that, and that's a, a, across the board. I mean, especially here in the U.S. with the standardized testing uh, the, the, yeah, right, exactly. I mean, the, the, the sort of, um, again, too, I mean, the, uh, I'm not, I'm not trying to dissuade anybody from going to college, but, you know, the, the sort of, you must go to college, you must get this sort of a degree, blah, you know, I mean, I, I, I went to school, uh, and I, I have a degree in, uh, political science, but I, I'm not a political scientist, you know, I'm not, I'm not gonna become a politician, I'm not gonna work in politics, it, um, you know, I, I, my current job has zero to do with political science, you know, but that is the, this sort of, like you said, this conformity, this expectation that you must do this and that by doing this, this will somehow ensure that you'll get either th this type of job or that then you, well, then you can go to grad school and then you can go, you know, become a, get a PhD and just sort of continue along with this. But the, the conformity of the, the schooling system is sort of, uh, shocking. Uh, you know, the, the level to which it exists. And I think that's an interesting, maybe that's just one way we could kind of get into, um, you know, the, the undue influence that children receive, you know, from the schooling system and how this sort of uh, affects them later in life. I mean, uh, John, I would assume you would agree, but I mean, this, the, the way that the school system, particularly in the Western world, you know, here and, and definitely in the UK operates, uh, it endows children with this sort of, crazy sense of obedience to an authority figure um, and you know how does this sort of then translate later in life I mean does this make does this make us more susceptible to undue influence later on because we've been so sort of uh, for lack of a better term I mean brainwashed as children in school uh, does this help you know is, is for instance I mean is this part of why uh, when Milgram ran his experiment people were so willing to uh, quote unquote, you know, shock people sometimes to death. They thought um, yep. because you know, well, you know, this is the authority. He's a he's a professor. He's a teacher. You know, he's telling me to do this, so it must be okay. I mean, what do you what do you make of that idea? I, I think it's absolutely so. I mean, Hannah Arendt talked about the banality of evil, and you know, I too have spent a fair amount of time studying Nazism in the attempt to understand the mentality, and you find that these were. Um, just ordinary people who mm. became consumed with an, with an idea and I think there are, there are various components to this um, you know I have, I have a friend who in talking about cults and you know how people come to, to join cults said well they take it from their mother's milk <laughs> we live in a society 
Margaret Singer used to say, you know, she called one of her books Cults in Our Midst. And I remember, I think she mentions it in the book, but I remember saying to me, you know, I was actually, I was tongue in cheek because I think our whole society is in the midst of a cult and that we need to, we need to grow up. We need to take responsibility for ourselves and our kind of nanny schooling system isn't necessarily helping that. It isn't preparing kids um, for life in the world. I mean, I work with very closely with a colleague uh, called Yuval Laor. Uh, he has a PhD in cultural studies, and his topic is awe and fervor and how these, you know, are developed in people. Now, last year, new scientists uh, acknowledged that, that there are now studies of these heightened emotions, which have been kind of avoided because they're associated with religion. And now that there are places where they're looking at it, and they wrote a, a very good, it's a very good article saying how positive and beneficial these heightened emotions can be to people's health and well-being. You know, you inject a little bit of awe into people and, and they feel better, you know, and they have that infatuation, mm. that limerence, which drives them forward. We wrote to New Scientist and they published a letter pointing out that while it is true that there may be personal health benefits to, to these feelings, this is also how the Nazis came about. <laughs> you know, so without making any value judgment about bliss states or ecstatic states or what have you, which are actually very easy to induce in people, um, you know, get them to stare at a wall for long enough and they will experience yes. the Gansfeld effect, you know, it's that simple in Scientology it's sitting and staring at somebody else. Um, or sorry, they, they don't like me saying staring, confronting somebody else. Right, confronting, well, yes, I'm, right, yeah. As far as I'm concerned, <laughs> that sounds a lot worse, but, um, <laughs> yeah. but, but you will induce, because as soon as you, you use fixation, repetition, or mimicry with somebody, there is a tendency for them to lapse into a, an altered state. Um, you know, if nothing moves in front of your eyes, then the brain makes something move. Uh, if you put somebody in a completely dark room, within 10 minutes, they'll hear things moving around them. You know, it, that's just how we're wired. We, you know, if there's nothing happening, we'll make something happen. Um, by showing kids how this functions, teaching them about awe, teaching them about psychological manipulations of various kinds, how we get people to agree with us, um, they become more resilient. We're also very interested in ident you know, in helping people to identify predatory people. Mm. Um, and I, you know, I'm, I read a, seven books about psychopaths last year. Oh, and, uh, <laughs> it fascinates me firstly that, that while there is some agreement, we haven't really arrived at a science, I don't think. And, I don't want to talk about psychopaths, sociopaths, people with a Machiavellian personality disorder, malignant narcissists of the grandiose or vulnerable type. All of these various classifications that we have, I would like to push aside in my work because I'm concerned about whether people are cruel and predatory. So the fact that, you know, psychopaths of all variants tend to boast a lot is an interesting indication you know, but what you're looking for is, is this person cruel? Are they hurting me? Are they hurting other people? 
And what's more beyond that, can we either A, isolate them from the society in some way, label them, show people that they're dangerous, or, or B, help them, you know, do something um, that, that will, will make them less dangerous. I mean, when you get to the level of the criminal psychopath, the serial killer, then you need to lock them up probably because there isn't much you can do. But there's very good work showing that you can help um, young people who have the callous and unemotional disorder. It's called, you're not a psychopath until you're 18. You know, we don't. Right, right. <laughs> you will transform. Um, but there is very good work showing that, that they can be nurtured, that you can limit the damage. And we also have the amazing James Fallon, a pro-social sociopath by his own statement, who um, he's a, a neuroscientist uh, who runs um, a couple of um, biogenetic companies too and you know, does good work in the world. And he had um, nine of his family members, he had brain scans done to, just to see if there was there were any Alzheimer's plaques or anything going on in their brains. And he, he had his own brain scan at the same time and then he had them randomized and he was looking at them. He said, well, this one here has the deficits in the paralympic system that are associated with psychopathy which of my family members is this and his assistant said well <clears throat> didn't want to tell you Jim but that's you <laughs> and he said that he lived his whole life believing you know from childhood believing that genetics is everything there's nothing you can do You've got the hand you're dealt that's it mm. and he realised he'd been wrong he realised that his mother had recognised the cruelty in him and the lack of remorse and the search for excitement that, you know, because they have a very low effect, such people. So they do things that are horrible to mm. get some dopamine functioning in their brains or, you know, to get some reward. And he realized that his mother had recognized this in him and schooled him so that, you know, while he still has these inclinations, you know, he talks about going, taking his brother on safari in Kenya to Marburg. And when his brother got home, he, he kind of said, you bastard, you knew you were taking me to the cave where Marburg Ebola came from, didn't mm. you? So he would take ridiculous risks, you know, which is part of, of the, the character, characteristic of sociopathy or whatever we're going to call it. But he doesn't, you know, he he's, has a limit set and he works for the benefit of others. So there is some hope there. But I would like children to be able to, you know, recognize straight off that, that somebody is going to hurt them and see the signs of that and get away from it. You know, so if you look at cult leaders, you'll often find that they've done monstrous things to other people. Uh, Rajneesh, his uh, followers now, I think, call him Osho the Buddha. Um, he called himself Bhagwan, which means the supreme god and is not something you want to say to practicing Hindus particularly. Um, but, you know, he created the Big Muddy commune in Oregon with 10,000 people there, the largest poison, mass poisoning in U.S. history when mm -hmm. they were trying to take over the county by voting it out. When you read about his childhood, you find that he actually um, got one of his classmates, aged eight or something, to walk a tightrope, and the lad fell to his death. And that's, you know, that kind of pushing people to do risky things... We need to understand that better. You know, 
And if you go from there to the techniques that such people use, I mean, the the bombast and boastfulness, if I'd, you know, just reading the first paragraph of any Hubbard book, knowing about that, you put it down. You'd say, well, you know, this right. guy is way too full of himself to actually be scientific or useful in any way. Um, so at the moment, it, it's been really fascinating. I started work on this in 1991 with the thought of bringing disciplines together. Um, I'd particularly seen that sociologists and social psychologists speak different languages. They're talking about the same things, but they actually have a different nomenclature. And that fascinated me that, you know, they're that far apart. You know, I'm not talking to you. You're a sociologist. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> John one another in a good cultic way. And that <laughs> led me to sort of go, well, we, we've, spe- we've over-specialized. We need to generalize. We need to bring things back together. And I realized that I did some exit counseling, you know, where you sit down with somebody who's still mm-hmm. fanatically involved with uh, a group and you've basically got one day to um, have a conversation with them that will make them change their minds. Now, I, you know, there was no way that I was going to get involved with deprogramming, you know, this kind of let's lock you up until we can make you see sense nonsense. So, Which we should point out is is like a horrible practice and doesn't really even work, right? I mean, this is sort of like a discredited pseudoscience when it comes to getting people out of control. Excuse me, getting people out of control groups. You programming is, is very harmful. Yes, and, and in, incredibly damaging and in many cases worse than the cult group that, mm. that somebody was supposedly being rescued from. Um, I mean, sadly, the techniques used by deprogrammers were adopted at Guantanamo Bay. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they are techniques of torture, They're techniques of breaking people down. And it, it doesn't, it hasn't worked at Guantanamo Bay. <laughs> yeah, if it doesn't work there, I don't think it's going to work, uh, you know, in a hotel somewhere. And the reality is, if, if you look to Indonesia, where Nasir Abbas of Al Jamalaya was was caught, in in Indonesia, torture is part of the routine police procedure. So, quite surprisingly, they sat sat Abbas down with a an imam, a mullah, an expert on the Quran, and this guy talked to him for three days and basically exit counselled him. And at the end of three days, he gave them the safe houses, the weapons caches, <laughs> and the leadership. Now, compare that to the man-hours that have gone into Guantanamo Bay, however many million. This was just three days with this guy, and he gave them everything. And that is more the approach. You know, for me, if I sat down with a Scientologist, and from 91 to 95, I I did cases, um, which was grueling because, uh, you know, with the harassment from Scientology going on on a daily basis, being followed everywhere I went and, you know, having nasty little leaflets handed out about me and, you know, friends phoned up and saying, you know, we're doing a criminal investigation of John and uh, all of this horrible stuff that they do. In the middle of that, actually sitting down with somebody who that morning has given a success story to a room full of exuberant Scientologists and being able to have a conversation with them it was a very interesting thing to learn. And I'm very happy to say that everybody who talked to me decided to leave Scientology. Um, you know, and as I said, I'd only have a day to do it. And it was all through process of conversation. It was all through giving them information and 
learning how to get on side with them. Because, of course, if you go into a room and say, well, you're an idiot and the stuff you believe is nonsense, that doesn't really start a useful conversation. No. My thing was that uh, I would not lie. So, you know, I, I did have one instance where a guy, you know, very early on turned to me and said, have you been declared a suppressive person? And I had to say yes, and he wouldn't talk to me beyond that. Mm. Um, but I wouldn't lie about who I was. I wouldn't claim that I was still involved in Scientology, as some exit counselors sadly do. Um, and I, I would, you know, have a conversation with the person where my role was to help them explain their involvement to, you know, their mum or their friend or whoever I brought in with me. And that's what I did. And the point was that if you explain that gradually enough, going through the points, they start to say, hang on a minute, why do I believe that? Mm. And you, but you have to create a comfortable environment. I realized that it would be very possible to do this with radicalized terrorists. You, know, you would need to understand exactly their persuasion, as I understood Scientology, but that it would be possible to talk somebody back and shocked and horrified me to realize that extraordinary rendition was the actual mm -hmm. method being used you know? right see so of bill clinton i believe you know if mm -hmm. you're gonna get into would you describe yourself as a former political scientist is that how you uh, yeah yeah see yeah, i probably would say that definitely <laughs> um and you know and just uh, you know, on that note i mean you also especially you know the school i went to was just so classic new york liberal uh, you know, just very, you know, uh, all Republicans are bad. Any Democrat is good. You know, it's like that kind of an environment. Uh, and yeah, they, they totally fostered this, um, BS narrative about what political science was and, you know, who we should be, you know, and it would, you'd have, you'd have these sort of interesting classes. And then at the end of the day, they'd be like, right. And you should all vote for Obama later. You know, when I, when I was in school, it was. Uh, during the 2008 election, you know, and, and you, these professors who are supposed to be these objective people, uh, you know, opening up your minds about all the, you know, differences and, and, and interesting ideas. And then, yeah, they would all just, you know, and vote for Obama or else, you know, don't yeah. be part of the problem. Um, yeah. And most of my fellow classmates and friends in their program did just that. Exactly. Um, mm -hmm. Unquestioning. Uh, you know, again, this authority figure is telling you this is the answer that you're all looking for as sort of young, idealistic college students. Yeah. And, and I mean, we, we have a broader sort of spectrum of politics where I live. You know, to us, the Democrats and Republicans are, you know, center-right parties, and that's all there is to it. And whether they're neoliberals or neocons. Um, so, you know, we have everything from, I mean, you have white supremacists and things right, like that. Right, right, yeah. I'm not insulting your political spectrum here. And you do, of course, have socialists. But we've, you know, in the 1930s, we had two communist MPs mm. in, in the British Parliament. And, of course, in Italy and France, you'll still find communist MPs. Um, we have a hard left. We have a centre left. We have the Liberal Democrats. We don't know where they are, but I usually vote for them. Um, we have the Tories, who sometimes are to the left of Labour. You know, it's very right. complicated. But those affiliations start to over... It, you know, if you look at the subject of child sexual abuse within religious groups, um, I think that the Australian Royal Commission 
investigated 8,000 cases of abuse by 500 Roman Catholic priests. Now, the no, it's not just them, the Methodists, the Anglicans, and, of course, the Jehovah's Witnesses, all have terrible scandals. And you look at this, what happens within these groups, that somebody will say, well, but if we tell the world about that, then they'll say we're a bad organization. Mm. And so we'd better keep quiet about it. And at that point, you've become a criminal. You know, it doesn't matter how great your political party is or how great your religion is, you have actually gone to the dark side when you start concealing offences against children. And, you know, it, it happened in Scientology too. I know many cases of child abuse in Scientology, and the cover-ups have been fantastic, you know, I have a friend who at 11 years old went to the police, made a statement of, after five years of abuse, and a woman called uh, Jan Eastgate, who runs an organisation called the Citizens Commission on Human Rights, persuaded her to withdraw the statement and sent her back into the household of the Scientologist abuser. When you do something like that, you've proved that your philosophy is useless, that your religion is bad. And it's time to, to walk away. But, I mean, I'm fascinated by the thought that we operate as individuals, we operate in groups, and we operate in crowds. And there's an idea, you know, we've, we've got people who are into swarm psychology and think it's great to have swarms of people decide things rather than experts, which is a lovely idea. I personally would rather listen to Einstein's views on gravity than, you know, 7,000 people who haven't been to school. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, you know, there are limits. But I think we do have a swarm mentality that we're like termites or locusts, that when you put human beings in a group, as Gustave Le Bon said in the 19th century, we reduced to the, the lowest common denominator. The most stupid person in the crowd is the level of the whole crowd. And so we see people... You know, if you look at the way the Nazis went through Bielorussia and that dreadful movie, Come and See, where you see that they just rounded people up, put them in barns and set fire to them and machine-gunned anybody who came out. Now, the week before, these people were working for the post office or, you know, um, selling sweets in a shop. They, it's not because they were brutal, sadistic people. It's because they came into a, a society where this was considered proper and normal. And even then we find that perhaps 50% of SS men refused to commit the atrocities unless their own lives were threatened. You know, they weren't actually as um, willing as we might think. But the other 50% did it quite readily. Mm. Um, I believe that if we can get people to accept responsibility for themselves and think autonomously, the world will be a better place even if we could just shift it so there was 1% more of people who understood the ways that we are affected. But we have this incredible protective mechanism, um, the ego, that, that each of us knows that... Uh, it's like if I say to somebody, are you being manipulated? The answer to that question will almost always be no. If I say to them, do you know anybody who's being manipulated? You know, or do you know anybody who's gullible? They say, oh, yeah. Right, <laughs> most, yeah, yeah, yeah. Most of my friends, you know. Mm -hmm. We have this intense blind spot that functions, you know, 360 degrees all around us that allows that other people 
have these faults, but we don't. And to climb over that barrier, you know, it's the one point where saying I'm an ex-cult member, um, as my friend Richards puts it, it becomes a badge of honour. Mm. That, that you can say, you know, I have to admit that I was gullible. Um, I often talk about an interview I did with a 19-year-old who'd been in the management of Scientology in the top 14, uh, directed by Hubbard. And he'd left because Hubbard had said, you're the only people I can save. Everybody else on the planet will die. There you go. And he right. said, well, but my parents brought me up in this. I, I want to go and be with them if we're all going to die. And, you know, he probably couldn't stand the other 13 people in the room. He certainly wouldn't want to end his days living with Ron Hubbard. Um, he smelled <laughs> bad, among other things. You know, let's just face that. He was a bad-smelling human being because his teeth had all rotten, rotted in mm. his head. Such were his superpowers. But <laughs> he said to me after, you know, two evenings of interviews, well, isn't it great, John, knowing that we'll never be conned again? <laughs> and I looked at him, this was many years ago, 30 years ago, and I said, no, the, the great thing is I know I'm gullible. And, you know, so it makes me careful. Uh, Robert Cialdini, who wrote the magical book Influence, and he's also on our advisory board, um, he starts the book by saying, I started looking into Influence because I'm a patsy, <laughs> you know. Right. I can be taken in by anyone. And I, it's such an important point to get over that humility is, is the greatest human virtue and the hardest human virtue, you know. <laughs> Well, it's, it's so it's so uh, it's embarrassing to admit that one is is gullible and that one can be kind of uh, conned into believing something, be it uh, you know Xenu or operating Thetans giving us power or simply just a, an average uh, conja. I mean, um, we're, we're coming just up on the break, but uh, you know, John, you open up your book by talking about a very simple scam that that almost kind of took you for a moment and. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, I'd love to kind of explore that a bit more in the second hour, but uh, we are at the commercial break right now. Uh, we we're, we're going to be joined in the second hour again by our good friend John Atax. So stay tuned. is dedicated to providing the best quality food you can buy next to fresh from a farmer's market. Our stringent quality controls and absolute zero GMOs plus testing for heavy metals makes us unique in the storable foods market. Our line of fruits, vegetables, and meats are suitable for everyday use and you won't have to worry about throwing away valuable groceries ever again. Take out the amount you need and reseal the package for use within the next six months. Simply Clean Foods' primary focus is to bring clean food to people all around the world and change the way we 
we look at freeze-dried food in our daily cooking. Go to simplycleanfoods.net. That's www.simplycleanfoods.net today. We all know that they're not telling us the truth. So stand up for your rights, demand the real medicine, and your right to use it and grow it. This is Rick Sensen, and you're listening to American Freedom Radio. American Survival Wholesale is a proud sponsor of the American Freedom Radio. And when you purchase quality products from AmericanSurvivalWholesale.com, you help support this program. Our quality non-GMO foods do not contain MSG, high fructose corn syrup, or heavy metals. At American Survival Wholesale, you can choose from over 8,000 quality products, including self-defense weapons, bug-out bags, and long-term storable food at wholesale prices. We also have custom food packs available, including gluten-free, dairy-free, and vegetarian packs. If we don't have it, you don't need it. American Survival Wholesale is a veteran-owned and operated company which also supports our veterans in need, and we are very active in disaster relief. If you would like to become a distributor, please email us at bugoutamerica at usa.com or call 818-720-0759. We offer free consultations to answer all your questions. Do it today while things are calm. That's americansurvivalwholesale.com. News and information you can trust. This is American Freedom Radio. Freedom, freedom, American. Freedom Radio. Radio. American Freedom Radio. I don't like words that hide the truth. I don't like words that conceal reality. I don't like euphemisms. And American English is loaded with euphemisms. Because Americans have a lot of trouble dealing with reality. Americans have trouble facing the truth. So they invent the kind of a soft language to protect themselves from it. I'll give you an example of that. When I was a little kid, if I got sick, they wanted me to go to the hospital and see the doctor. Now they want me to go to a health maintenance organization. Smug, greedy, well-fed white people have invented a language to conceal their sins. It's as simple as that. The CIA doesn't kill anybody anymore. They neutralize people. The government doesn't lie. It engages in disinformation. Israeli murderers are called commandos. Arab commandos are called terrorists. Contra killers are called freedom fighters. Well, if crime fighters fight crime and firefighters fight fire, what do freedom fighters fight? They never mention that part of it to us, do they? Never mention that part of it. You're listening to AmericanFreedomRadio.com, the network who perseveres in delivering intelligent debate, constructive dialogue with true independence. The freedom to broadcast the truth is not free at all. So what is American Freedom Radio worth to you? The empowering information with fun, honest and pure integrity behind it provides an example to follow. Friendships to flourish with the moral altruism that pulls no punches. The hosts sacrifice and show remarkable discipline in their duty to deliver quality radio in service to the community with strength, wisdom and loyalty. The founders of AFI wish to thank you personally for sharing your views and insights to make the best radio and alternative media. Now it's time for you to give something back and play a vital role in the future of America. Be as generous with us as we've been with you. Click on the donate banner at AmericanFreedomRadio.com or volunteer by emailing AmericanFreedomRadio.com. Vaccine, psychotropic drugs and artillery batteries not included. Launch sequence
and Freedom Radio. Hawkins Policy Radio, offering a unique perspective on everything geopolitics, culture creation, the reality of the world we live in. To you live from New York City, your host, Pierce Redmond. Okay, everybody, welcome back to Porkins Policy Radio. I am your host, Pierce Redmond. If you are joining us now in the second hour, we have been speaking uh, with a return guest and a friend of the show, John Atak. Of course, the author behind uh, Let's Sell These People a Piece of Blue Sky. Uh, but I also wanted to, to plug uh, some of uh, John's other books, because um, he's written several. Of course, there is Opening Minds, The Secret World of Manipulation, Undue Influence, and Brainwashing. And uh, we are going to be talking about uh, Opening Minds a little bit later in this hour. But also Scientology, The Cult of Greed. Uh, as John said, he's uh, translated... Um, the Tao Te, Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu. Uh, and John has also uh, written some novels as well, so Halcyon Days and Voodoo Child Slight Return. So a very accomplished writer. Of course, we'll link up to uh, all of these books in the show notes, uh, and I highly encourage people go out and check them out. But, uh, uh, John, when we were uh, sort of wrapping up in the first hour there, uh, and we uh, we were talking about the, the you know being gullible, and uh, you were relating this story about a, a young uh, man who was in Scientology, uh, who was in uh, management. So again, much you know, a much sort of higher up in the um, you know that's when you begin to become almost like a cult within a cult uh, type of a of an idea going. And um and and he said you know oh well now look now we're we, now that we've been on the inside and come out. Uh, we won't be susceptible to this, and you say no. I mean, we're still gullible. It's just now we're we're cognizant of uh, the fact that we're gullible. And um, and I was mentioning there before we we cut off on the break, and maybe we'll kind of pick up uh, with this. But you know, you you mentioned a um, in the beginning of your book in Opening Minds, uh, you talk about uh, again, I guess, a moment of uh, you know being gullible, and um, and you you talk about being conned almost. Uh, by uh, some guys, probably I don't know in Mumbai or something like that, uh, who yeah. were claiming to be from Microsoft or from a third-party Microsoft certified corporate, and they—I guess they'd hacked into your computer and no. they were attempting it, to get money from you, right? It's a great scam, and um, the, the company is called IMAX, like the, the, the cinemas. Um, and uh, what they do is they call you on the phone and they say you know I'm from Microsoft and and your computer is in terrible danger if we don't do something immediately you'll lose everything on your computer and I'd, I'd just woken up and and so I wandered off to my computer and the guy said right just type in type this in mm. and of course you've just given them control of your computer um and then it's sort of, you know, and I'm starting to wake up a little bit. And, mm. and I'm going, what am I doing here? Hang on, who are you again? Oh, we're, we're partners with Microsoft. And I'm kind of sure he said we, we are Microsoft when this conversation started. <laughs> right. 
And he sa- I said, well, can you show me that? And of course they can show you on your screen now. They've got control of it. Microsoft certified gold certificate. And I'm going, yeah, hang on. Um, where, where's your authorization from Microsoft? And they, they, they give you the address of Microsoft in London, you know, cause I'm in England. And they, you, you know, afterwards, of course, with time to reflect, you, you get that there's a script and they're following it. And, when I questioned this guy and said, look, you know, I'm not sure about this, he said, you are not a gentleman. You know, <laughs> how dare you? And he said, it's no skin off my nose, you know, if, if you don't do this, because I'm not on a commission, you know. And, of course, it's just a prepared script that they're reading. And the idea is they get you to pay, you know, 200 bucks or something, but that's for only one year's protection. You can get five years protection for only 400 bucks. And what they'll do is they'll then plant ransomware into your machine. And every six months, you have to go back and pay them a top up. And they've just, made, you know, I basically said, look, you know, I don't want to do this. <laughs> and um, they, his supervisor phoned me back and uh, remonstrated with me. And he again he apologised for the other guy being rude to me. And then he said, you're not a gentleman. And you go, aha, exactly the same words, I see. And I pulled the plug of my computer. My oldest boy is a computer engineer. He came and checked it over and everything was fine. But realising the predatory people are not just paedophiles who are looking out for prey. They are people who want to scam us. They are people who will have, you know, get us into abusive relationships, toxic relationships, and that can be women as well as men. Most of relationships, with the bad relationships, 80% of them will be men preying upon women. But I have a friend who was significantly beaten up by his girlfriend, and, you know, you're stuck in this situation where you don't really want to talk about it. You, know, mm. you don't want to tell everybody that this has happened to you. And... Indeed, there's a feeling in the culture that um, when people talk about coercive control, um, there's a, a, a book on the topic by a guy called Evan Stark, who I think is out of uh, Rutgers. And its subtitle is How Men Entrap Women into Relationships. And it's sort of, well, you know, I get that in our misogynistic society with its history of oppression of women, that, that we need a little bit of positive discrimination here. But the suggestion that it can't happen, you know, women on men or women on women or men on men mm-hmm. relationships, we, we need to be aware of that. Uh, there are recruiters who want to get you into a, you know, multi-level marketing scam or want to take you to a, a large group awareness training forum, landmark, est, life spring, these kind of things. And there are all sorts of experiences you can give people. It's very easy to make people feel euphoria. Very easy. I learned many techniques of how to do this in Scientology. They have literally thousands. You know, there are about two, more than 2,000 specific techniques. And I learned how to use several hundred of them. I'm very glad that while I learned to use them, I didn't get much practice. You know, I was learning them to understand the techniques rather than to become a professional auditor, as they call it. So I didn't mess up too many people along the way. But coming away after nine years and realizing that these techniques, are they're all aimed at, at making somebody feel euphoric. And when we feel euphoric, we feel that sense of awe. 
we make the mistake of believing that the source of that uh, emotion is wise, virtually all knowing. So when we see, you know, we experience something that gets us feeling high, let's be, you know, honest about what euphoria <laughs> is, we get that dopamine, serotonin, you know, rush going on, all the adrenaline, the opioids, all of that stuff going on, then we tend to believe what they tell us. And because um, in Scientology, as soon as they've got you sat down in the euphoric state, they ask you for more money. You know, it's right, instantly. Yeah. Um, so showing people, you know, those approaches and those techniques, those simple things, and indeed teaching people how to um, make themselves feel happy um, a little bit and, and learning that these are not, you know, sacred esoteric truths from the Egyptians that have passed through the Illuminati into present times. They're just everyday things you can do. Um, that will make you feel better. A lot of people, I had a friend who, he played uh, rugby football, and he used to cycle 120 miles um, every day. You know, he was super fit, and he was doing a master's degree. And then he was injured um, playing rugby, and he couldn't cycle anymore. And he got withdrawal symptoms. You know, he got all the stuff you get when you stop taking heroin, <laughs> pretty much, I don't think it's quite that bad because the natural opioid release that he was getting from this super exercise wasn't there anymore um, but teaching people who don't exercise that a little bit of exercise can make you feel better um, teaching people who sleep too much that a bit less sleep can help the other problem is much more rampant that about a third of people don't sleep enough and it means that their emotions go all over the place and they are very manipulable. You know, it's very easy to get a sleepy person to do something, which is why one of the interrogators at Guantanamo Bay talked about sleep deprivation being the royal road to confession. So they wake them up every hour. So they never get good sleep. I mean, at the moment, we've got cell phones doing this for kids all over the world that something like 30 or 40% of children in in the rich Western countries, leave the notifications on on their phones. And because they've got friends all over the world, they keep being woken up through the night and they don't mm -hmm. sleep properly. And the idea that something that simple can be used to control the population simply by them not having enough sleep, not having enough exercise, eating way too much sugar or way too much fat so that their systems become overloaded, Simple things like that, which are you know, helpful to people to help them avoid manipulation, but then you know that's not really my my area of expertise. Though I do sleep enough and I do eat properly and I do exercise. Coming to think about it, so I, I do know about it. Um, <laughs> it. It's not what I'm, you know, it's not I'm not a naturopath or something. I'm not teaching people these things, but they are necessary to then move on to be able to think critically. So if you're sleep-deprived, you won't be able to think. Um, understanding that confusion is one of the simplest techniques of control, um, so that if you talk gobbledygook and make it sound clever, people will sit back and go, oh, wow, this person is really smart, you know, and I hope I'll be that smart one day, but until then I must sit and listen. Um, Milton Erickson, the uh, pioneering hypnotherapist, medical doctor he had a lecture where uh, 
a professor stood up in the front row and started calling him a charlatan. And he said, oh, um, well, why don't you just come up to the podium and explain what you're saying? And as the man approached him, he reached out his hand as if to shake hands. The professor reached out his hand, but Ericsson kept going down and actually tied the guy's shoelace up. And while he was doing this, in that moment of confusion, he said, you could just go back to your seat and sit quietly till I'm finished. And the professor just turned round and went and sat down. And seeing that you can take a professor, a highly intelligent person, and use a moment of confusion to insert a little command is rather scary because it makes you wonder what's happening you know, in the normal everyday world. You know, how much are we being affected by these things which are priming us and, you know, moving moving around our thoughts and our feelings that, that we're just not aware of? Um, so, as you become more aware of these things and you become a bit more relaxed about the world and what's going on in it, after the initial paranoia, you know, <laughs> right? then... Even for me, I wanted, you know, having left Scientology, I felt ashamed that I learned these techniques to sell people things. I, I could, I had a particular interest in people who were opposed to Scientology, so I suppose, you know, it's continued for me. There were two, two people in particular who objected to Scientology. One of them was a psychologist, and I was able to persuade them to do Scientology. And, so, you know, maybe I, I just have some natural urge to, you know, do something oppositional with people. I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, it always fascinated me when I was struck, stopped on the street by recruiters, you know, by born-agains or Krishnas or Moonies or what have you. I'd just stop and talk with them, you know. <laughs> and, right, yeah. uh, you want to talk? We can talk, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, they would run away, you know. Often, whoops, excuse me. I often tell the story of um, when I was 17 this uh, Bible basher approached me and um, we spoke for two hours on a hot afternoon on the street and he, event he ended up backing away from me I mean literally <laughs> walking backwards and he said um, I don't understand the Bible but I know it's all true and that thought really struck me you know the division of mind that is necessary to say I don't know what I'm talking about, but I know everything I'm saying is the truth. You know, mm. that one puzzled me for years. Now I understand it. I understand that we all do this. We all have these certainties. Um, and it, what marks out the mature mind is the ability to to question those certainties. Mm. Uh, well, and again, there. You know, we were talking about. We talked a little bit about that, and in the the first step, you know, is this maturity, you know, sort of growing and, and being aware of these things. Uh, and unfortunately, we seem to be in a society whereby uh, we don't want to instill these sorts of values in, in kids. And, and just when you were talking there about the, the, the cell phones, like late at night, you know, I, I'm guilty of this, as I'm sure lots of people are, you know, of checking your phone late at night or just simply not putting on the, you know, you can set your phone for like night shift, but just so that it lowers that blue light uh, that does stimulate your brain. And you, you'll know what I mean if you if you stare at your phone late at night and you, you seem you can't fall asleep. It's because there is a chemical in your brain that is released when it when it that blue uh, electronic, you know, computer screen light. 
And the idea that, you know, all so every every kid now has a, a cell phone, a smartphone. They're all checking them late at night. Uh, they're not getting enough sleep. Uh, therefore, they are more susceptible to manipulation and undue influence and things like that. And and you had mentioned just a little bit before there, John, that, you know, predators don't have to mean pedophiles um, or, you know, something of that ill. But um, I- explain a little bit more about that, specifically with kids. I mean, what are, what are some of the sort of... Um, you know, predators or predatory behavior uh, that we're that that you're seeing through your research and, and the work that you're doing at the Open Minds Foundation that are are you know sort of targeting children because I think again you say predator everyone has this image in their head of you know the creepy guy giving candy out and hauling kids away in his van but it, it it's much deeper than that there's a there's there's in many ways more serious threats. Uh, from predatory behavior towards kids. Um, so what do you mean by that exactly? Well, it, it runs a whole gamut that if you start with predatory school teachers, that every now and then you'll, you know, I, I've experienced it with two of, I have four children, with two of my children, that they suddenly, they were doing really well in school and then suddenly they, they weren't and they weren't happy. And in the first case, um, you know, my boy now is 32 years old, but he was eight. And I, he came home one day and he said that the teacher had threatened to hit one of the other children. And so I immediately picked the phone up and rang the, the head teacher and said, this has happened. And the head teacher laughed at me, actually laughed at me, saying, you know, that just wouldn't happen. Now, it so happened that I'd phoned pa- the parents of two other children in that class. And the one parent had asked the child and the child said, oh, I don't know. But the other one said, yeah, my child says this threat was made. So I called the head teacher again. And two years later, that teacher stopped my son, who was no longer at school there, on the street, and said, the head teacher, and said, please thank your father, because we've had to sack this woman. So you get, you know, I mean, I, I would say that probably most of the teachers, when I was in secondary school, high school as it is in America, um, most of them w- had become predatory. They were allowed to hit us. They shouted at us. Um, they discouraged us. Um, my friend uh, Rachel Bernstein in um, Los Angeles, who's a brilliant counsellor there, helping a lot of former cult members, um, she said that, that she gave a talk to uh, a class of adults and, and said, I'd like you to write down one time you were encouraged at school and one time you were discouraged. And the majority of the people in the class, something like 90%, I think it was, couldn't remember a single instance of encouragement. Now, to me, that verges on a predatory environment because <laughs> to learn things, not only do you need sleep and you really must switch that phone off at night. Not, not only... You know, we need encouragement. We need people to you know, stroke us and tell tell us that we're doing well. Um, and there's, you know, it's just a way of closing people down. Part of this is our attachment to people, um, that, you know, the old Freudian transference and all the nonsense that Freud talked, um, which we were talking about earlier before yes. we went to um, It's pretty much gone. This guy, John Bowlby, came up, who was, you know, left the Freudian community in the 50s, 
he came up with attachment theory, this idea that how we attach as children is important to us throughout our lives. And you have a secure attachment, which I pretty much had with my family as a child. You can have a dismissive attachment where you're put down all the time when you try to be anything or do anything. You can have an avoidant attachment where you're ignored, which is reckoned to be even worse than being dismissed. Um, my friend Alex Stain, who wrote Terror, Love and Brainwashing, says that in a cult group you have a disorganized attachment where the person that is your source of comfort is also the source of your pain. Mm. So it's like the parent who says, oh, come here, I love you, and then slaps you around the head. I think there's a tremendous amount of dismissive, avoidant, disorganized attachment for children um, in the schools. Um, what we see when children have secure attachment, I mean, I've been re-watching The Wire. It's, and I admit it's my third time through. Yeah, no, no, I've, I've seen it now four times as well. Oh, I was going to say, when you're talking about schools, that was the, the, the wire is what popped into my head because, I mean, yeah. you really see how bad the school system is. Yeah, the, the fourth season there where um, Presbyluski, the, the cop who shoots everything and everyone, <laughs> yeah. has, has now become a brilliant math teacher instead, teaching the odds at craps to kids. And I think <laughs> that, you know, um, David Simon and what he's what he achieved there and the people around him, what they achieved, is a phenomenal indictment of our Western society. Um, the head of the Shanghai School District, they won the last, every two years there are the so-called PISA tables where, you know, 150 countries or something, the educational levels are assessed, numeracy and literacy. And Shanghai actually came top of literacy and numeracy. When he was interviewed, the head of the school district said, we'll never come top again, because to do this, we're, we're making robots. Mm. You know, we're just making kids who are brilliant at passing tests. That's no use to society. Now, what a shaming thought that this came out of communist China. <laughs> this didn't come out of the free liberal West. This came out of communist China, where somebody's saying, we don't want to produce robots. We want to produce thinking citizens. Mm. Um, so, returning to the notion of predation, con artists, uh, cult leaders, scammers of all kinds, there are certain ways of recognizing them. And um, so, what we're seeking to do, and, and it's been an adventure, and it's, you know, um, you, you have people who've become an authority in a subject, and they then just tell you what it is they've learned. Um, that's not what my life is like. <laughs> uh, I every week find out something else that, that makes me realize how foolish I've been in some aspect of my life. So we started this thing and there were a bunch of us who had some expertise about cults particularly. Uh, my great friend Christian Cherko, who's over here in Oxford, um, an American defector, been here for 40 years. Um, my friend uh, Sasha Dvorkin, who's a professor in Moscow, who's had 25 years of um, teaching people about the problems of cults. Uh, Stephen Hassan, over there in uh, Massachusetts, who's certainly the best-known um, counter-cult figure in the world uh, for his book Combating Cult Mind Control and his other two books. Um, we came together with some people who know something about business because you know that's that's something that we're none of us very very good at. We're, quite reasonable at talking to people 
getting them to give us money is, you know, it's not really... It's always any- a harder sell. Yeah, exactly. So um, my brother, uh, Jim, who's, who's a, been very successful in the oil business um, and won't retire, <laughs> it just, he, he, he keeps trying every few years, but he, he keeps then running another company somewhere. He's running a, a company um, making batteries for um, buses and ferries. You know, massive batteries, the kind of thing that Elon Musk is known to. Because having worked in the energy industry, you realize that was the weak point. You need storage. So he's running this um, company in Switzerland now. But he's come along. Um, my friend Dick Kelly, uh, who's out in Arizona, again, a very successful businessman. We've come together. We found people who understand marketing and yeah, this is this is a real problem for me because you're part of my. I, I study whatever forms of influence there are, so I've read a great deal about propaganda and advertising along the way, because you know human beings are the same. The things that work on us, that once you've got them, you know, you, Scientology uses hard sell techniques. They actually had Hill and Knowlton working for them. You know, at the time that Hill and Knowlton were setting up the um, Kuwaiti ambassador's daughter to lie in front of a congressional commission and uh, say that she'd been in Kuwait when the Iraqis came in and turfed Incubators. A totally made-up story by Helen Knowlton. But these wonderfully ethical advertising people were working for Scientology at the same time. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you, they they never dumped the Kuwait account, but they dumped Scientology. They decided they'd pass. (laughs) But all of these manipulations that are used... Um, which, which lead us, you know, here I am saying, well, we want to promote open minds. We want to get these ideas out into society. Is there any way of doing that without using the Machiavellian devious techniques of PR? And we found some internet promoters who actually are ethical. They don't want to use tricks. Um, they, they, they want to use an approach, um, that is accessible. And we put up our first website and we weren't happy with it. Then we found these people. Actually, this guy had been a friend of mine for some years. He rather reluctantly at first joined us and then became, you know, totally fired up by what we were doing. And and he and his company have done incredible work to make our new website. And that made me, you know, really have to go back to the beginning and say, how do you get this stuff over to people? We've been out here for decades trying to warn the society about these groups. And I'm happy to say that the Moonies, the Krishnas, Scientology, the Way International, the groups that that we were really bothered about in the 70s and 80s are all in decline massively in the West. I mean, Scientology is down to 25,000 paid-up members. Can you imagine that? Yeah, 25,000. That's what their internal stuff says, which is is wonderful. Um, the Moonies, who are a massive force in the West, where are they now? The Krishna organization blew apart. Um, so, you know, we can count that as a success, but now we've got the Internet gurus. You know, we've got uh, Free Domain Radio. I was just going to mention, Stefan Molyneux, who uh, finally blocked me on Twitter after I called him out for being a cult leader uh, too many yeah. times, I guess. Yeah, uh, but I mean, yeah, freedom in radio is a, a huge issue, um, yeah. and and Molyneux has 
continued to redefine himself. You know, now he's he's no longer a liberal. You know, now he's basically just like some right wing troll, uh, and people still give him thousands upon thousands of dollars, uh, and he talks absolute nonsense and claims to be the most intelligent human being who's ever lived. Yes, yeah, like, like any good cult leader guru. Like any good malignant narcissist. <laughs> yes, right, which he certainly is. <laughs> yeah. um, and, it, you know, it's good that his wife was censured for uh, recommending this uh, defooing, you know, um, getting away from your family as, as a basic method of therapy, you know. Mm. Despicable, absolutely despicable. Mm. But oh, which is just exactly what Scientology practices, the disconnection. Yeah. yeah, and it's a hallmark, really, if you want to talk about, you know, where's the line between a, a benevolent cult group and a destructive cult group, it's always shunning, ostracism. Mm -hmm. We decide that you no longer have the right to talk to people who don't like us. And, you know, I, I've never had any, I've never felt susceptible to that. You know, when I met people who didn't like Scientology, I talked to them, you know, and, and I didn't feel that they were going to have some malicious animal magnetic effect upon me. Um, and they didn't. And, it, you know, that sort of, that whole sense, you know, the cognitive dissonance that we feel, that wobbly feeling we feel when we're disagreed mm. with, I've learned to actually welcome that. And so, you know, if somebody disagrees with me, as long as they don't want to punch me, obviously, <laughs> um, you know, I rub my hands together and go, oh, good, I'm going to have a conversation here. And at the end of it, I will have learned something, you know, and hopefully I'll have shared something that will be useful to this person. But so many people see conversation as an aggressive, you know, uh, battle. You know, it's an argument. Whereas for me, to disagree with somebody is a beautiful thing where where you can share information and and come to a new conclusion, a new synthesis of what that information means. I mean, you talked earlier about the your Republican-Democrat divide. The only man in my life so far that I've called a mentor uh, was a, an ex-Scientologist who um, he left a tiny bit after I did. And, uh, he was a rocket scientist who'd become a psychologist. He, but for 32 years, he was involved with Hubbard's Systems. He was on the second Dianetics course in 1950. He was a very angry man. He was the angriest man I've ever met, and I don't do well with anger. Um, but I, he, I have to think of him as a mentor because he made me think about things. And, you know, he was very smart, very angry, very pushy, and he was a Republican. What can I say? You know, mm -hmm. his wife was a Democrat and he was a Republican. And it, it was, you know, it, if we start saying, well, I'm not talking to you because you're Chinese or white or from the planet Mars, or I'm not, you know, I have a friend, I, I recommended to him Norman Cohn's brilliant book, Warrant for Genocide, which deconstructs the mythology of the protocols of the elders of Zion and proves conclusively that it was written by the Russian Cheka. It even shows where the original manuscript came from, which was, you know, he's written 20 or 30 years before Zionism was even born and they've just put the word Zionist into it. So it's a brilliant piece of work by one of the great historians of the 20th century and I introduced this to a friend of mine he said, oh, but he's Jewish. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, so, oh, no, I'm not reading that. And yet, why does that happen? Why 
you know, I, I will read things by people who disagree with me thoroughly. Um, I mean, I posted a piece at Open Minds uh, recently just quoting John Stuart Mill, explaining the only way to wisdom is to listen to everyone, to hear them out every time. You know, otherwise you will not be wise. You you will just have, you'll just be dogmatic and bigoted, you know. And so to say, you know, I'm, I belong to this group, I belong to that group. Um, I don't belong to any group. I belong to the human race. You know, as Charlie Chaplin said, he was a patriot of the human race, you know, of the whole world. This idea of dividing ourselves into camps and making up all of these abstract notions that we can wave uh, flags about, um, when we should have values which we independently develop and ethics that we maintain with the understanding that it is up to me how I behave. Um, that isn't actually a part of our society. You know, people, you know, as, as Gilberton, you know, there's recently been all of this nonsense about brain scanning and saying that you can, there's a genetic predisposition to being a Democrat or a Republican, <laughs> um, which is fascinating and nonsense. Um, but I'd like to point out that Gilberton Sullivan in the 19th century in a song which is the best way to explain things, said that everyone alive is born either a little liberal or a little conservative. So you know, this is not new thinking at all. Um, we, we will have tendencies to, to be more open or to be more fixed, partly from nurture, partly from nature. But if life is to be interesting, then it, it must include change and transformation. Um, it must include the notion of um, commerce and communication with other human beings rather than, you know, I, I, I've used the term sovereign self for many years, coined by the playwright Dennis Potter. And the problem is we now have sovereign citizens yes, yeah. clouding this idea rather badly, you know. Mm, mm. But I believe in the sovereign self, that, that each of us uh, should be in charge of ourselves. And I, if there's one thing I oppose, it's the notion of the guru. I think there's a short time when you're a child where dependence upon adults is a necessity and the adult should be kind to you. But by the time you reach your majority, whatever age that is, wherever we're speaking, um, 18, 21 or 32, as the Romans believed, where adulthood begins, um, <laughs> when you reach your majority, you should be able to think for yourself. You should also be able to take advice from people you know, and um, respect the authority of people who know what they're talking about. But you should be able to say, hang on a minute, I don't understand that. Could you explain it a bit better? And that brings me to what we're seeking to do with the website. That um, I wrote most of the content of the website. In fact, I wrote all of the content with the exceptions thing on child alienation because we happen to have a psychiat retired psychiatrist who's an expert on uh, family psychiatry so I thought he'd do a, definitely do a better job of that than me and I'm hopeful that other people will come along and do a better job than I have of everything because you know I don't want to be a guru really um, but for the moment the, you know, the, we put the content there we created a taxonomy, a structure with a particular problem inherent to this subject some people will come to us who know nothing about it some people will come to us who are experts and there'll be everything in between from novice to expert. And so I think we pitched the website initially at the sort of general reader, not 
you know, people are super literate or, you know, have PhDs, which is a way that, you know, many of the websites on um, coercive control and critical thinking, I mean, you've got to have swallowed the dictionary to be able to understand them. Yes, and no, indeed, yeah. And well, they're they're talking above people's heads. Yeah, and they're talking to one another about it. Mm-hmm. Wonder if they've really understood what they're talking about, because, um, you know, it, it, it's that problem that comes with many psychologists that that communication is is beyond them. You know, they if they can think of a new word for it to make it seem more psychobabbling, then they will. Uh, <laughs> And I was reading this, uh, I was talking about Robert Burton, and in The Skeptic's Guide to the Mind, he tells the story of, of sea squirts, and he says as larvae, they swim around, and then they attach themselves to a rock uh, to go into the adult stage, and the first thing they do is eat their own brain. And uh, I was telling this story to my friend Yuval Oor the other week, and he said, oh yeah, that's like graduate students. They attach <laughs> cells to a university and eat their own brain and I'm sad to say that you know while I have I've known some brilliant academics um, Louis Jolyon West at UCLA med school was just one of the most incredible people I've ever met um, Bob Cialdini Philip Zimbardo there's some very clever people out there but there's an awful there are an awful lot of people who are just tenure they just want tenure and they will just pass on the next set of ideas you know, to the next little sea squirts so they can <laughs> swim around. So the problem became, you know, how do we communicate this to young people because they need it most? You know, if I'd known, if I'd read our website when I was 19 years old, I would never have become involved with Scientology um, or several of the other odd things I've done in my life. But we don't know. It, it's not out there. So, we started working last year. We've been working on it for a long time now, for ooh, six or seven months, on actually bringing these principles into animation and finding ways of expressing fundamental ideas so that you can you can give just one idea. So take Cialdini's remarkable seven principles of influence, that if you take, say, the scarcity principle, that it's very easy to convey to somebody that if, if an, a salesman or an investment is, is saying to you, buy now, while stocks last, this is scarcity. They are selling you scarcity. And the reality is, pretty much, that if that thing's so popular, it'll be available tomorrow as well. Um, I had a, an instance of this last year. The, the phone company were trying to sell me a new hub, Wi-Fi hub, and it would cost me £60 to have it fitted and £10 for the hub, and then it would cost me £10 a month extra. So I waited, and sure enough, they dropped the £60 fitting charge once they'd sold enough to have an engineer coming out to put them out. But it was still £10 for the hub and £10 for the additional to my bill. And I'm getting, it doesn't really make that much difference that I can connect 10 things to my Wi-Fi instead of five, you know. Sure enough, it came down to... £10 to buy the hub, which they'd send you in the post, and in fact, all the engineer was going to do was plug it in, right, for £60, um, and £5 a month, and at that point, I bought it. But the scarcity principle will say, you've got to get it now, you must have it now, and in a consumer culture, this is functioning. So just 
showing somebody that in a simple way, once they've got that, and you, I've just explained it in two minutes or what have you, they'll notice it the next time and the time after and the time after. Well, the authority principle that because, so, you know, somebody will say, well, you should listen to me because I've got a PhD or, you know, I, I'm, you know, a, a world famous cyclist who called Lance, Lance, Lance Armstrong and I've never taken drugs in my life. Um, I am well, author- he was literally shooting up EPO and doing blood bag transfusions. He was he was crazy, and I saw an amazing documentary about him. Talk about narcissism! You know the the way this guy views himself, and that contempt for other people, which is one of the signs of a predatory person, that they don't care about anybody else. That caring compassion is is not an aspect of their makeup. Um, having said that, you can get an inversion of that, which we call a weaponized empath, uh, which I've written about on the website, where you get people who are profoundly empathetic and you can turn them into dangerous weapons. Uh, I contend that Heinrich Himmler, the head of the SS, may well have been an empath. You know, with the last 20 years, we've had all of this stuff about being empathetic. Well, Empathy is a knee-jerk reaction. It, it's not compassion. It's, you know, feeling the suffering. So when you come to advertising, you, you know, the, the commonplace, as with Hill and Knowlton and, and the babies in incubators, if you want people to go to war, you tell them that babies are being hurt. So in the First World War, the British press published articles about the Germans going to Belgium and chopping the hands off babies. Can you imagine that? The, the dread dreadful Huns. After the war there were two commissions, a Belgian government commission and a US government commission that investigated these and there was a British MP called Eric Ponsonby who wrote a wonderful book about the whole subject of propaganda in World War One. and he went, you know, they found these things hadn't happened but Ponsonby went and found the man who'd made the story up, a colonel in British military intelligence who thought it was tremendously funny that he'd received thousands of letters asking if people could adopt these babies. Mm. And it, it just kind of bypasses reasoning. You you make somebody believe horrors, you take their empathy, and they then are willing to go and murder other people because of the empathy they feel. So you know, we have to be careful in terms of manipulation, um, how our emotions are being used. Um um, but we have to be particularly careful of those people who themselves are unfeeling and uncaring. John, what, what kind of... Uh, you're talking about the uh, animation there specifically and, and sort of educating people. And, uh, you know, we, we live in a society where, uh, you know, people are more willing to be, I don't know, to watch maybe a short film uh, about something than, say, read, you know, tons of books. I mean, I... I I'm sure you've you've probably seen it or you're familiar with the uh, Carrie Burt How to Start Your Own Cult video, um, which is like a weird, I don't even know, art film, sort of like a step-by-step uh, how you, you know, make a cult. And it's a pretty effective video. You know, if you watch it, um, you probably could start your own cult or you would at least have a general understanding of, of you know, everything from love bombing to – uh, isolation, how all these things work. So, in the videos that you're talking about, I mean, what are you going to be kind of uh, focusing on? Again, you were talking about young people here too, um, and that again reminds me, you know, the internet, 
uh, you know, Stefan Molyneux definitely likes to prey on, I would, I, I would think younger people, you know, um, twenties to thirties, you know, people that are out of college that, um, have this sort of idealistic zeal, uh, to them. And he definitely kind of preys upon that. So what are the types of videos that you're going to be working on exactly? Well, you know, I'm hoping that Stone and Parker are listening. <laughs> You know, come along and give me a hand, or Seth MacFarlane, maybe, or Matt Groening, because you know, I, you know, I when I came away from the, the Scientology thing, I started writing novels because it seemed to me that popular culture is the place you have to go. Um, there's a wonderful psychologist called Judith Rich Harris who wrote a couple of books that really upset the psychological fraternity. She was housebound, and for 20 years, she up, her work was updating textbooks. And um, because of that, she was having to read a lot of studies, and she realized that things that were being said about nature and nurture were not, in fact, true, that, that we were making all sorts of generalized statements that are not supported by the evidence. So, for example, identical twins um, don't share personalities. They... You know, they will share, if you IQ test them, they tend to be fairly close. But in terms of personality testing, they are more distant than ordinary fraternal twins. So how does that work? You know, they've grown up with the same experiences. They've started with the same genetics. Uh, how does that work? And she, so she started questioning all sorts of things. And her conclusion was that we are most influenced in early adolescence, that we will take on our life values somewhere around the age of 13. We won't take them from school and we won't take them from our family. We'll take them from our peer group. Now, for me, the next step of that argument is where does the peer group get its values from? And it takes them from South Park or uh, Rick and Morty or whatever is being watched at the moment. Great cartoon. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or, you know, some grime artist or, you know, somebody doing hip hop. That's where the values will come from. I can say, you know, when I was 13, um, there was this bloke who was imagining no possessions who was living in a two million pound house and playing a piano worth more than my house. But there you go. Mm. Uh, his name was John Lennon. <laughs> and, you know, he and, and that, the note, the hippie notions around him, influenced my life. I was 13. I adopted that as my culture. Um, and it influenced, influenced me throughout life. So, you know, I don't believe in the old Jesuit maxim, give me the child until he's seven and I will show you the man. I, I think give me the child at the age of somewhere between 11 and 15. And how you need to approach those kids is through their own culture. You know, they don't want some old bloke like me ranting and rambling at them. They want to see something that gives them the information in a form that's digestible, which is where really, you know, I sincerely believe that Stone and Parker particularly are a part of the um, cultural backbone of our society because by being so rude and offensive and having, actually having an audience of 13-year-olds, even though you know, they're not meant to be watching it because it's <laughs> X-rated. Um, they've influenced thinking. Their attacks upon racism, you know, the way that Cartman is um, anti-Semitic. Mm. Uh, it, their, you know, their attacks on Scientology. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Coming out of the closet with Tom Cruise. 
Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but, you know, calling the, the black kid token mm. and, you know, looking at disability with Timur. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, it, I think it's, it's incredibly good because it, it gets kids to think about it. Um, you know, much more than their school books do. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated at the moment by the Khan Academy, Crash Course, uh, School of Life, Book of Life. These direct, you know, outreach programs that are going straight to kids and a process called flipping that's happening in some schools where the kids watch those videos, then the kid that's got it explains it to the kid that hasn't. And the teacher is there to facilitate that based on the notion that the older we get, the more remote we get from that young understanding of things. Um, my third child is, is a something of a math prodigy. And he enjoys nothing more than, you know, explaining to the kid next to him how simple this really is. <laughs> and I think that sense of getting rid of the kind of tyrannical dictator notion of the teacher um, with the dogma, the biblical dogma of the education and doing a such, and making education a process of playing games, which is how we actually learn things, of enjoying ourselves, of, you know, I want kids to, when they go to sleep at night, to to be, not to be looking forward to the next notification that <laughs> new products available from Hong Kong, but but to be wanting to sleep because they really want to get up the next morning to go to school, probably a bit bit later in the morning, given the melatonin release problems that <laughs> adolescents have. But you know, I, I want them to be. And, and so you hear about there was a school at, uh, in the states where they decided the kids decided they wanted to build a car that could um, race at Indianapolis. So they did. Mm. And yeah, they built a car, you know, and they had to learn all of the skills that go into that, which include you know, mathematics, technical drawing, um, metal work, all sorts of understandings. And you found that those kids were actually staying two or three hours extra every day at school, um, passionate about what they were doing, and their academic performance in all subjects went up. So boring the hell out of children which is the the basic system in place i mean in the way you get that the great thing where you've got the class where all they're doing is memorizing the answers to the sats right and they you know i when i was a kid uh, we had a a girl who she was in the guinness book of world records with the largest number of exam passes in the uk she'd pass them like 120 of these exams where normally it'd be 12 you know and it was said that she would have a tape playing all the time with the material. She'd go in and pass the exam, and if you asked her two weeks later any question from that exam, she wouldn't be able to answer it. Right. <laughs> and, you know, so the thought is to make short animations that explain, really based upon our website as it exists, on the existing structure and taxonomy of the website, and we're looking for funds... Uh, if there's anybody out there um, and if you have Stone and Parker's phone number we'd like to talk to them or Seth McFarlane oh, I, I, I wish I, I've done multiple shows uh, dissecting South Park so I, I you know I always hope and pray they're listening um, yeah. but uh, 
You know, perhaps they will. And I would also, I mean, I, Justin Roiland of uh, Rick and Morty, because, uh, you know, they, they, they cover a lot of kind of similar, I mean, you know, not to get too off track, but, you know, Rick's, much of Rick's whole ethos is think for yourself, don't be, you know, sheep. Um you know, uh, d- don't don't follow your parents uh, blindly all the time. So, uh, perhaps if Justin Roiland or uh, Dan Harmon is listening as well, I'd uh, definitely encourage them to get in contact with me, and I'll, I'll put them in contact with you, John. Sounds good to me. And, <laughs> and I think that that there's, you know, I, I don't think people understand the wealth and richness of our contemporary culture. There has never been a time when there were so many creative people, mm. and. Yeah, the fact that we're drowning in, you know, cheap pop music still and, and this kind of stuff. Kim Kardashian. No, no. Let's not, <laughs> not be sued for libel. Um, <laughs> but there's an upswell of, of genius that, you know, that throughout my life, you know, from being a kid and listening to, you know, Jimi Hendrix and later, of course, writing a novel with him as a character. Quick plug there for Voodoo Child's Light Return. Um, that... You know, he was one of a hundred people, you know, you know, just in the music scene, mm. hundreds of people of tremendous genius. Uh, I have a, an old abandoned personal website where I wrote a lot of music criticism. And I think the article that I wrote about guitar players eventually counted, and I think there are 149 albums that I recommend <laughs> in the course of this great long meander about, you know, guitar players. Um, we also, oh, John, I, I don't want to interrupt you, but we're, we're, we've only got about a minute left, and I just wanted you to once again uh, tell everybody where they can go uh, to check out the Open Minds Foundation, and we will definitely get you back on the show soon. Great, thank you. Uh, TheOpenMindsFoundation.org, and uh, my, my book is Opening Minds. Excellent. And again, I, I highly encourage everyone to uh, read Opening Minds, to read Let's Sell These People a Piece of Blue Sky. Uh, John's got novels, uh, which he just mentioned, their Voodoo Child, Slight Return, also Halcyon Days. And uh, there's just a wealth of information on Opening Minds, so I can't uh, recommend it enough. And again, if anyone, uh, I'm sure you have a donate button um, if, if people okay. want to to help. Uh, highly encourage everyone to do that. And John Atek, I just want to thank you once again for coming on the show, and I will be getting you on again as as soon as possible. Uh, there's right. so much more I want to talk to you. So uh, thank you again, John, and uh, right. I will be talking to you all very soon.
American Survival Wholesale is a proud sponsor of the American Freedom Radio. And when you purchase quality products from AmericanSurvivalWholesale.com, you help support this program. Our quality non-GMO foods do not contain MSG, high fructose corn syrup, or heavy metals. At American Survival Wholesale, you can choose from over 8,000 quality products, including self-defense weapons, bug-out bags, and long-term storable food at wholesale prices. We also have custom food packs available, including gluten-free, dairy-free, and vegetarian packs. If we don't have it, you don't need it. American Survival Wholesale is a veteran-owned and operated company which also supports our veterans in need, and we are very active in disaster relief. If you would like to become a distributor, please email us at bugoutamerica at usa.com or call 818-720-0759. We offer free consultations to answer all your questions. Do it today while things are calm. That's americansurvivalwholesale.com. We all know that they're not telling us the truth. So stand up for your rights, demand the real medicine, and your right to use it and grow it. This is Rick Sensen, and you're listening to American Freedom Radio. Simply Clean Foods is dedicated to providing the best quality food you can buy next to fresh from a farmer's market. Our stringent quality controls and absolute zero GMOs plus testing for heavy metals makes us unique in the storable foods market. Our line of fruits, vegetables, and meats are suitable for everyday use, and you won't have to worry about throwing away valuable groceries ever again. Take out the amount you need and reseal the package for use within the next six months. Simply Clean Foods' primary focus is to bring clean food to people all around the world and change the way we look at freeze-dried food in our daily cooking. Go to simplycleanfoods.net. That's www.simplycleanfoods.net today. Yo, what's up? Check this out. The voice of the revolution. American Freedom Radio. American Freedom Radio. And I hope people support American Freedom Radio. And I hope people vote with their dollars and really understand the value of having American Freedom Radio. Because that's my family. If you love me at all, Jack Blood, support American Freedom Radio. Like, my family has literally disowned me. <laughs> American Freedom Radio, Danny and Don and those guys, those are my actual family. So please, please support these guys because they have all the technology. They have all these great things that they're going to do. But obviously, they can't do it all by themselves. So not only would I like to see you support them, I'd like to see you retweet them and repost them and really get involved and get on the the bandwagon, so to speak, on doing that do-it-yourself promotion because they're a do-it-yourself radio network, and, uh, and we just need that so much. You're listening to AmericanFreedomRadio.com, the network who perseveres in delivering intelligent debate, constructive dialogue with true independence. The freedom to broadcast the truth is not free at all. So what is American Freedom Radio worth to you? The empowering information with fun, honest and pure integrity behind it provides an example to follow. Friendships to flourish with the moral altruism that pulls no punches. The hosts sacrifice and show remarkable discipline in their duty to deliver quality radio and service to the community with strength, wisdom and loyalty. The founders of AFI wish to thank you personally for sharing your views and insights to make the best radio and alternative media. Now it's time for you to give something back and play a vital role in the future of America. Be as generous with us as we've been with you. Click on the donate banner at AmericanFreedomRadio.com. 
or volunteer by emailing American Freedom Radio at ymail.com. Vaccine, psychotropic drugs, and artillery batteries not included. Launch sequence Freedom Radio.